that we may now consider as we shall be enabled words you will find in the portion of scripture we read together the gospel according to Luke chapter 11 and we shall read again at verse 21 Luke chapter 11 reading at verse 21 when a strong man armed keepeth his palace his goods are in peace but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Uh, now in order to get something like a um, true conception or a like um, <coughs> understanding of this passage it has to be taken in connection both with what precedes it and what follows it the immediate occasion for it was the accusation of the Pharisees that it was by Beelzebub the prince of the devils Christ cast out devils this was their explanation of um, the miracles of healing which they saw with their own eyes they could not gainsay the fact that the devils were cast out, but they had their own explanation. They thought that they had a satisfactory explanation too. But Christ was in league with the chief of the devils and that it was from the chief of the devils he received his power. And in that connection he says to them if a kingdom is divided against itself it is brought to desolation if a house is divided against itself that house cannot stand and if Satan is divided against himself how can his kingdom stand why the very thing is preposterous so what they thought a reasonable explanation was no explanation at all. 
It was contrary to the very nature of things that Satan should cast out Satan, that he should be divided against himself. Well, if that is so, what is the real explanation? How are we to explain that Christ actually did cast out devils? Well, that is what we have here. When a strong man armed, he kept his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he cometh upon him and overcometh him, he taketh from him his armor wherein he trusted, and he divides the spoil. But again, we have to take this in connection with what follows. We are told that the evil spirit may go out of a man. And that this same evil spirit seeketh rest and findeth none. And then said, I will return to my house whence I came out. And coming, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh unto him seven spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter into that man, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. But see how these two are connected. Christ refers to the stronger than the strong man. He also refers to the to the unclean spirit going out of a man. And the connecting link is this. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now taking this uh, <clears throat> parable of the strong man first, mm. notice that every word is chosen with the purpose of emphasizing the strength of the strong man. strong man armed. And the word is the strong man fully armed. He birth his palace or his house. The strong man. And the word man is not in it is the strong one 
went the strong one armed, fully armed, keepeth his palace, his goods or his possessions are in peace. Now, of course, the context makes it abundantly clear who the strong one is. And this is Christ's explanation of Satan's relationship with men. Not that he is divided against himself. Not that his kingdom is in any danger of coming to an end. But he is the strong one, fully armed. And the uh, cases of the rather the, the way in which this is expressed, it means this, the strong one, fully armed, is always on the lookout. He continuously guards his own palace. Now, it is quite easy to uh, get um, a wrong view of the picture here. Who is he guarding? The strong one. Or, as he stands guard, is he looking in or out? Perhaps if we take the illustration of a prison guard, what does the prison guard, what does he, what does he watch? He watches the inmates, he watches the prisoners. Well, that is not the idea here at all. It is the strong one standing on guard against interference from without. It is not that he is afraid that his goods or his possessions will rise up against him. He certainly is not. He is not afraid of that. That's not why he's watching at all. But he's watching lest there should be interference from without. And that is precisely what the Savior says, when a stronger than he cometh upon him. Certainly not within his palace. But the attack is from without. There is no possibility of his possessions rising up against him. No. If there is to be a release of the prisoners, if there is to be a dividing of the spoil, the strong one must come from without. Now then, who is the strong one? It is Satan who is 
not divided against himself. And there is nothing that I know of <coughs> within the whole range of scripture truth that sets forth more clearly and more emphatically man's condition in Satan's power than the passage we are here discussing. The completeness of Satan's power over man. It is an awful thought. It is an awful condition to contemplate that man in his fallen state is altogether under the power of the evil one. Notice, this is called his own palace. When the strong one armed keepeth his own palace, his goods are in peace. Now there is no doubt, but that in scripture, we are informed that in a certain sense man in a fallen condition is the property of the devil. There is of course a sense and a very real sense in which man as a creature is God's property. God has propriety in us as well as sovereignty over us. That is true and that cannot be changed. But it is equally true. And we do not have the scripture at the view of the master unless we take gold. It is equally true that man in a certain sense a very real sense is the property of the devil. Hence we read, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Ye are of your father the devil. Now how can it be said? that man belongs to the devil. Well, it can be said first in view of this. He is a prisoner of war. He belongs to the devil by right of conquest. Having made man and having overcome him, man became a spoil of war. He belongs to the devil 
by right of conquest. He overcame him. Now he keeps him. But he belongs to him in another sense. He belongs, man belongs to the devil in this sense that man has sold himself willingly to the devil and still does the same. Man is in bondage by his own choice. He chose to be like this and he still chooses to be like this. So much so that he is not aware of being in bondage at all. He is a willing slave to corruption. He is a willing slave to his master. He is a willing slave to his own lust. He wishes to be like this. He is in peace. That is to say, there is absolutely nothing to indicate that he is dissatisfied with the service in which he is. There is much of proof to indicate that he may be dissatisfied with certain parts of it. But taking it as a whole, this is his life, to serve diverse lusts and pleasures. And when he refuses one, it is in order to choose another. But all within the range of his captivity and servitude. He's in peace the only peace that he has. But consider the strong one. How is he strong? Well, he is strong according to the scale of creation. Who knows how strong he is? He is in a preeminent sense the strong one. He's called the God of this world, the God of this age. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air, the Spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. The strong one. But he is the strong one, fully armed. Fully armed. Armed in order to keep that which he has won by conquest. He has no intention. <coughs> of letting his prey escape him. He has no intention of setting the prisoners free. He is armed. 
So if we were to consider the strong man now, in relation to his goods, if we were to consider how the devil is able to keep men in bondage to himself, we might consider how he works in man. But that is not, I take it, that is not, at least primarily, the lesson of the parable at all. It is how he is armed against anyone coming to deprive him of his prey from without. How is this? How can it be said that he is armed? What is his armor in this respect? In other words, what can the devil use? And use as an argument with God himself that his goods should be left in peace, that he should not be deprived of his wife. Well, first and foremost, he can use this one, and it is a strong one. This is indeed a strong weapon in the devil's armory. He can use the argument of gift. Gift. Why does he hold his prey? He has, he has his prey with that through conquest. How does he hold it? He holds it on the ground of gift. This is what makes man's condition, as he is of himself, so absolutely helpless and hopeless. This is what seals his doom, in as far as it is sealed, under the power of the strong one, art. Man is guilty. He is given over by the righteous judgment of God. He is given over to this condition. So that the devil can use this argument, even the righteous judgment of God. And this, of course, is the, is the nerve, this is the very marrow of the devil's position in relation to man. He has it. Not only by man's own choice, not only by the conquest, but, but by the tempter overcoming him in combat, but he has him as, as given over by the righteous judgment of God. So that 
This is the first weapon. How can God interfere with the position of the adversary? When that very position is sealed by God's righteous judgment, he's armed. But not only is there gift in relation to man, but there is also alienation of affection. Man is at enmity with God. He doesn't want to be brought into God's presence. He doesn't want to be released from the slavery of sin. He is far away. But then furthermore, there is this other weapon which the adversary can and does use. There is man's sinfulness. He is not fit for communion with God. He is not fit for anything but the slavery in which he is by nature. That's the only thing he's fit for. He's a child of God, corrupt, unfit for communion with the eternal. Now, in this and by this, the strong one keeps his possession. He keeps his palace and his goods are in peace. And here they will remain. And thus they will remain. Unless there is a stronger than he. Have you ever noticed this? That according to uh, the Synoptic Gospels, that is the first three, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Christ's victory over the adversary is the first thing we are told of. He met the adversary and he met him and overcame him before he, before he performed any miracle. The value the necessary prelude to his casting out devils was that he should meet the devil in person and overcome him. And the outcome of that encounter was this that Christ said to him, Get thee behind me. He was not to go before him anymore. The commandment is, get thee behind me. And that commandment he had to obey. 
But that was at the beginning of the fray. He overcame him, therefore he could cast out devils. He could cast out the one whom he had overcome. But the battle wasn't decided. The war wasn't decided there. It was going on. For we read, he departed from him for a season. The tempt that departed from us, but he returned again and again and again. He returned to continue the war. He returned. And this is a very important part of Christ's life of humiliation that again and again and again he was assaulted by the devil. But there had to be a decisive battle. And of that we read, he spoiled principalities and powers, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. Someone put it, he routed the forces of darkness single-handed, and death in dying slew. He routed them, but there is something more. And his strength in setting the prisoners free has to be related not only and not primarily to his overcoming the adversary, there is something that is unspeakably more, unspeakably higher than that. What is this? He was strong. He was strong to earn for the guilty. We said that guilt was a strong weapon in the devil's armor. And what could counter it? How could this be met? Only by a free and a full pardon on the part of Christ. Where did we earn that? Where did this weapon come from that he wields and wields with almightiness against the adversary? Where? He got it when he bare their sins in his own body on the tree. Only he who was strong to bear sin and make an end of it is strong enough to come upon and overcome the strong one armed keeping his palace and his goods in peace. 
He was strong to bear sin and to bear it away, to make an end of it by the sacrifice of himself. He is the stronger. And not only so, but he was strong to live when he is cast out, cast out truly, as he says himself, forsaken. This is that he might bring those who were alienated, that he might bring them back to God. He lives in, in the desert. When he is forsaken, he still lives. He is strong to live where none ever lived before him. God's forsaking of the creature always meant death. When God forsook his son, he didn't die. He lived in death. That which meant death to all others, he overcame and conquered, and he could use the words why hast thou forsaken me? He is still living. When he is forsaken, he was the only one who ever did that. The only one strong enough to do that. When Adam was forsaken, he never said, Why hast thou forsaken me? Why? He died. Immediately he was forsaken. He couldn't say, why hast thou forsaken me? He was already dead, dead spiritual. But Christ lived in the desertion. He lived when forsaken. Why? Because as the Father had life in himself, so he gave the Son to have life in himself. Why? That he might give eternal life to as many as were given him. He was strong then to live when forsaken. That is, to bring those who were alienated back to God. We further mention that man was polluted. But this one is pure. And he is pure when he is bearing sin. Oh, that, how wonderful that is. We are apt to overlook all these great and glorious mysteries of the faith. He bore sin, and yet he was sinless. That sounds commonplace, but it is far from it. He is the only one who was sinless and yet made sin. Those whom he releases from their bondage have no holiness. No, but he has it. And he has it 
even when he has taken their sin away. And this is a certain aspect of Christ's relation to his church. And that is permeated with comfort for sinners, lost sinners. What is that? It is this. But when sin is imputed to Christ, although he is himself holy, harmless and yet when sin is imputed to him, he bears the punishment, the curse of sin unmitigated, is poured out upon him, though he is himself sinless. And what's the counterpart of that? It is this. That when Christ's holiness is imputed to a sinner, it doesn't matter how sinful he is, God deals with him according to the righteousness that is imputed to him. Doesn't matter how sinful you are, if Christ's righteousness is imputed, God declares you righteous. Why? Because Christ, in all his holiness, was made sin when sin was imputed to him. His personal holiness did not stand for a moment against the outpouring of the bias of divine indignation. And your personal sin it doesn't matter what it is, if Christ's righteousness imputed to you, your personal sin will never stand against God's blessing upon your person and upon your service in the Spirit. That is, of course, the essence of justification. That is the justification of the ungodly which is the only justification known to the scripture, the justification of the ungodly. They had no holiness, but he is made unto them of God. Their sanctification, their holiness. Here he is then. And it is this art that he comes to deprive the strong one of his good. The devil uses the weapon of gift to keep his goods, his possessions, his palace in peace. The devil says, how can God, how can he exercise his power to set free the prisoners when it is by his own righteous judgment? They are handed over. How can it be? And Christ is the, the stronger one who can answer. That question has been decided. Their guilt indeed is that which handed them over to the adversary. But that guilt is taken away. And I am come with a full and a free pardon, 
that is to say, this is an everlasting transaction. It is not something transient, something temporary. This is for eternity. He sets the prisoners free. And sets them free in such a way that they cannot go back where they were. It is impossible that they should. Because in setting them free, he deprived the strong one of his arm. He has no more that he can do with them. Oh, he will harass them. Oh, yes. He will do all he can. Yes, against them, yes. But he can never bring them back to his servitude again. Guilt has been taken care of. Alienation has been removed. They have been renewed in the spirit of their mind. Hence, they are indeed set free. Set free with the glorious liberty of the sons of God. A strong man, the strong one keepeth his parts. His goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he cometh, This is salvation, salvation by price and salvation by power. A stronger than he cometh and overcomes. And this is the hope for the lost, that there is a stronger than he, and the only hope. There is a stronger than the strong one. There is one who can deprive him of his arm. There is the leader of the Lord's host. There is the captain of salvation. And it is he who set before us in the sure word of the gospel. Do we need to be set at liberty? Do we need to be emancipated? But there is but one who can do it. The stronger than the strong one. How strong is he? Well, under the old dispensation, God spoke like this to his people. <laughs> he is strong that saveth them. He is strong that saveth them. How strong? The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Arms that are full of power, arms that are great in battle, a right hand that is exceeding exalted in height. And this is he, God in our nature, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Yes, but there's more. What more there can be than God with us? It is this, God for us. God with us. 